Welcome back to the Better Way podcast brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is a curiosity podcast where we ask, there has to be a better way, right? There just has to be. I'm Zach Kosalia, the co-founder of RNG Insights Lab, and I'm here as always with my friend and colleague and partner in crime, Wei Chen. Hi, Wei. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We have a really exciting discussion today. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. Our guest today is who, Wei? Our guest today is Marion Perinder. Marion's here to tell us about some very fascinating experiences that I believe we can all learn a lot from. Let's start by asking Marion to tell us about who she is and what her professional background has been. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I've been really looking forward to this discussion because um, if there's uh, anything I enjoy talking about, it's congressional modernization. <laughs> and so I came into um, uh, into this work in sort of a, a roundabout way. Um, my background is mainly in academia. Um, I did a PhD in political science and focused on um, Congress and political parties and campaign finance. After um, finishing up my my graduate work, I taught for several years and then uh, came up to Washington and did a fellowship working in Congress. And that sort of you know piqued my interest in a more applied career in political science. And so um, after teaching for a few more years, I'd moved up to D.C. permanently. I continued to teach, but I mainly worked in the you know sort of nonprofit civil society uh, realm, focusing on congressional modernization, transparency, government reform type issues. And then that eventually led me to uh, to my work in Congress. Terrific. So let's talk about why we wanted to talk to you today. Quay, we read this this article, right, in the Washington Post. It was an opinion piece, actually, by um, Amanda Ripley. And the title was, These Radically Simple Changes Help Lawmakers Actually Get Things Done. And the article was all about the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. And Marianne, you were part of this effort, right? So tell us about your role um, within the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. Sure. So the the committee was formed at the beginning of the 116th Congress. And so each session of Congress is two years. So that was in January of 2019. And there had been um, efforts to uh, create such a committee you know, beginning in 2018, where a number of members were meeting and trying to push the leadership to uh, to organize um, a, a committee that would be structured around the whole idea of modernizing and reforming how Congress operates. I, I was uh, sort of involved in those discussions in 2018 through my work with various nonprofit organizations trying to encourage Congress to do this. And so when they actually did it, I, um, you know, sort of jumped at the at the, the chance to get involved in it and um, you know, did my best to you know make my way around uh, the halls of Congress and talk to the staff who I who I knew were were going to be involved in the work, and so got myself hired. And uh, when I came on board early in 2019, um, it was just me and the staff director because she had recently been hired. So the two of us were sort of you know on our own for about a month trying to figure figure things out. But that was sort of how I came to the work. When you talk about 2019, it, it was the pre-pandemic era. And I think this is how most people think now is the pre or post-pandemic era. It was, if I recall correctly, an extraordinarily divisive time in, in Congress, even more than the usual divisiveness. 2019, Trump was president. Pelosi was Speaker of the House. 
uh, there was contention on just about every issue. On top of that, for probably decades, I would think, you know, at least based on polls I've read, most American public have already been seeing the Congress as a place where things cannot get done. So you take a very dysfunctional organization in the midst of an extraordinarily divisive time. And on top of that, you want to do a topic like modernize the Congress, uh, modernize an institution that's over 200 years old. So the, this is, this is the, the, the background in which we have set, um, we're, we're going into this, this committee's work. But are there even additional obstacles to this committee? Because based on what Amanda Ripley wrote in her piece, and I'm quoting her, quote, if any congressional committee were set up to fail, it was the Select Committee on, on the Modernization of Congress. So tell, tell us why that, why did she say that? Well, you know, you make an interesting point about when the, the committee kicked off its work, because when the rule passed at the beginning of 2019, creating the committee, the leadership had to then appoint the, the members to the committee, six Democrats and six Republicans. So we were totally split um, bipartisan committee. It took leadership a while to do that. And once the, the members were finally named, um, the government shut down because of a standoff over the budget. <laughs> and so, so we then moved into a period of the longest uh, shutdown in, in history, uh, which delayed the start of our committee being able to, you know, actually get up and, and, and running until March. And um, and also keep in mind that that when the committee uh, was first formed, we were given one year to do our work. And so here we were in March, you know, um, just getting started with two staffers and, you know, and, and the members just, you know, finally getting to meet for the first time. Yeah, as you say, there was a lot about the structure of the committee that would make it seemingly impossible to get things done. As Amanda Ripley noted in that in that piece, we were totally bipartisan. So there was no majority advantage. The The rules that created our committee said that the only way we could pass a recommendation is if we had two thirds of the members supporting it. So eight of the 12 would have to vote in, in favor of a recommendation. So that meant, you know, that any recommendation would have to have bipartisan support. I think that was probably what most people saw as working against us, just because, as you know, everything in, in Congress has become so partisan and you know so divisive along party lines that um, a lot of votes that take place in committee are just you know all Democrats vote one way, all Republicans vote another way, and so the you know the idea that we would um, you know somehow have to have bipartisan consensus to get anything done uh, was something that that most people saw as impossible at that time. I mean, this idea of the modernization of Congress sounds like a good one, but again, we're talking about a two hundred plus year old institution that maybe isn't thought of by a lot of folks as modern at times in its operation. So what was the impetus for its creation and how did that then lead into sort of the charter or the remit of the committee? Well, our committee was um, was the, you know, the most uh, recent in a uh, in a long line of reform committees, but they typically are created every 20 or 30 years sort of a, an exercise in lifting up the hood of Congress and, you know, looking inside and figuring out what's broken, what could be improved, what could be replaced. So, you know, it's it's a, 
a lot of what we focused on, at least initially, and this was part of our um, our jurisdiction, was looking at things like administrative efficiencies. Are there ways to, um, you know, to to modernize the the process by which you know members and staff get reimbursed, you know, for travel? <laughs> Are there ways that we can update the the way that we um, distribute technology and you know approve software that can be used in addition to those sort of um, I guess more administrative and, and and technology aspects. There are just also changes that need to happen in terms of how the institution works. And there's been, you know, for example, a lot of frustration over the past um, decade or two, uh, where members feel like a lot of the the power that they have had historically to have control over the legislative process has been uh, sort of usurped by party leadership, and so. You know, all of the big bills get drafted in leadership offices and members don't have any input into that process. Um, committees are sort of left out um, of the, the, you know, the, the whole process whereby bills are, you know, drafted and amended and debated. Um, most of what happens is determined by the leaders and just brought to the floor by the leaders. And so members kind of start to push back on on that, on those kinds of processes and saying we want we want more of a say in how things are done. And so there, there are those those factors that come into play as well. As we go into your work, I, I also just wanted to, wanted to point out what really fascinated me right in the beginning of, of um, Amanda Ripley's article. So there, there was a predecessor committee to, to the committee that you worked on that ended in 2018, and it produced zero recommendation. Tell us... How many bipartisan recommendations did the committee you worked on manage to adopt? We passed 202 recommendations in four years. And that's every single one with a supermajority required. Yes. About two-thirds of those have been implemented or partially implemented. The process is still underway to continue implementing. (laughs) Where do you start? So I was going to say that the the committee that you just referenced that um, that wrapped up in 2018 that was a reform committee uh, that was set up to look at how the budget appropriations process could be restructured and reformed in such a way to make it more meaningful. That committee was set up. It was um, it was to last two years, and what they did over the course of that two years was hold hearing after hearing, have uh, budget appropriations experts come in and talk about what could be done differently and how to improve the process. And uh, they um, drafted a, um, a pretty you know, detailed, long set of recommendations. Um, some of them were, were pretty radical, literally kind of shake things up. This was also a bipartisan uh, committee. But then the way that they produced their recommendations was the way that almost every other reform committee prior to them has done it, whereas they went through this process over two years, had hearings, uh, produced a massive final report that contained all of the recommendations with the goal of then bringing that report to the floor um, at the end of their two-year run uh, to uh, to get a vote in both the, you know, the House and the Senate. Um, what happened was that even though they had agreement in the committee on the recommendations and then had gone through the, you know, run all the traps, we've got leadership to um, to approve and, and that sort of thing. Once they brought the uh, the 
the bill with the recommendations to the um, to the floor in the Senate, it failed to pass. And it was nothing to do with the, their recommendations in their package. It was some dispute that had to do with the leadership that didn't want to take that vote at that time. And so it was essentially just some internal dispute that had to do with leadership and nothing to do with the package. But the whole thing went up in smoke. Um, and then their two years were up and nothing passed. What did you all do differently? Chairman Kilmer, who uh, was uh, the chair of the um, Modernization Committee, he served on that Budget and Appropriations Committee. He's uh, he's an appropriator in the House. He's very, uh, very focused on ways to make the budget and appropriations process work better. And that experience for him was um, was just terrible. You know, it, it, uh, just the, the amount of time and energy that went into it was something that was uh, a great frustration for him. And so once he was named chair of the uh, Modernization Committee, he decided we're not going to do that. I am not waiting until the end to vote on a huge pack of, uh, package of recommendations because who knows what's going to happen between now and then and who knows what might happen when we you know, bring that package to the floor. So when we have consensus, we're going to take a vote on the recommendations and pass them right then. So we called the process rolling recommendations. And so we would um, set up the calendar so we would have you know, a hearing on transparency, a hearing on the committee system, a hearing on constituent communications. And then after three hearings, put together a list of recommendations that we got out of those hearings and then go through the process with our committee of vetting them, you know, um, getting rid of some of them, adding others. And then, you know, till we came up with our final list and then scheduling a, um, a committee markup where the members would vote on them. So as soon as we knew we had consensus, we voted on them. So we just kept the process rolling that way and just kept racking up more and more, you know, successes um, as we went along. So that was one aspect of um, how the committee worked much differently from from uh, its predecessor. So it sounds like what you did was, this is my, my interpretation, breaking what could have been a big package into bite-sized successes that... Yes. And, and each time you had a little success, it was one more thing that you can actually show people yeah. as this is how things could work and that help you accumulate more bite-sized uh, wins. Exactly. Yes. It sort of, it, it created a momentum. And, you know, once the members of our committee saw that it was working, um, they felt great about it too. And so it sort of inspired them to keep going. And then uh, once we reached the end of the year, when we were our first year, when we were supposed to expire, um, that success that we had had, you know, over the course of, I guess it was just nine months, um, really inspired the leadership to extend us. And they you know, they said, well, you know, uh, we, uh, we think you've done great work so far. Let's see what you, what else you can do. And we'll extend you through the end of the, of, uh, of the 116th Congress, which was through 2020. It's an amazing lesson that I think has such direct applicability to so much of the work that we do and so much of the work that our clients and listeners do. This idea of breaking it into pieces, getting those wins, building momentum toward an idea or toward a project. Honestly, it's it's advice that I feel like I often need to hear because I think big and I want that package. You know, I want all of the bits and pieces. And so the reminder um, and the the kind of case study of of breaking it into pieces and getting the full package through, you know, smaller wins and building momentum is, I think, a really important. Well, one might call it a better way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
but as amazing as that is, it's the actual building of the consensus that seems far harder and far more complex. And we talk a lot on this podcast and in the work that we do, we we talk a lot about the complexity of people, obviously. And um, as we said at the outset, that's only, you know, amplified or even more complex because of the political climate and the culture within the Congress. So how did we get the people to reach consensus? How did we build from, you know, looking at this opinion piece, a, a sort of different culture within this committee as compared to, you know, many others in the past and many others that were existing, you know, in parallel and other parts of Congress. Right. The chair, uh, Derek Kilmer from Washington State and the um, uh, the vice chair who in the 116th was Tom Graves from uh, Georgia, Republican from Georgia. And then the 117th was William Timmons, who was a Republican from South Carolina. There were a number of, of steps that they took. So initially with Kilmer and Graves in the 116th, they met each other essentially for the first time when they were named chair and co-chair and, you know, recognized uh, together that they had very little time to, you know, to uh, uh, to undertake this uh, this task of modernizing Congress and um, discussed how can we get up and running quickly and how can we create um, a, a culture uh, that will be bipartisan in this incredibly partisan um, institution. And so a couple of things that they did from the start that made a huge difference and that were, you know, again, radical when you look at how the rest of Congress functions. Um, the, the first the first two things they they decided that the committee had to do was get its budget and hire staff. Typically with committees in um, in the House, the way that it works is the committee is given its budget and the majority party gets two thirds of the budget and the minority gets one third and the majority gets two thirds of the staff and minority gets one third. And that's the case even if the majority has a one seat majority. So those, you know, those, the, the way they divide it up isn't exactly equal. It doesn't reflect the actual, um, um, you know, partisan divide. Um, but they said, let's just keep this simple. You know, it's six Democrats, six Republicans. Let's have one budget and let's hire one staff. So everyone we hire will both approve. And so when I um, when I was brought on, I interviewed with um, you know, Mr. Kilmer's office and with Mr. Graves' office. And once they both signed off, then I was hired. And I was told when I was brought on, um, you are not working for the Democrats on this committee or the Republicans. You are working for all members of this committee. Mr. Kilmer always said there are no red jerseys, there are no blue jerseys, there are only fixed Congress jerseys. <laughs> so everyone who works on this committee has the same mission, and um, and so there's you know there's none of that um, doing things by party. So that created a, a, a incredibly different culture than you normally have in in Congress. I mean, we were, we were the only committee that was set up like that. We had one website. You know, typically there's a Democrat website and a Republican re website for every committee. We had one Twitter feed, one communications director um, who, you know, did did press for the entire committee. Um, so from the start, we really were all just focused on the same mission instead of, you know, what's the party line on this? So that was a, you know, a, um, from the get go, just a really different way to structure the way that we moved forward. So interesting, though because you worked in this environment where trust was being built 
collaboration was deliberately being built upon. And then came January 6th. And that was an experience, I'm sure, was particularly traumatic for everybody who was actually there on the scene. What did that is what did that do to the committee and how did the committee deal with, you know, whatever the impact was? The experience in the for the first two years in the 116th Congress were quite different from the, the 117th, which as you as you just said, uh, started right, you know, on the heels of uh, of January 6th. In the 116th, the committee had had such a strong bipartisan run. The, you know, the, the members worked incredibly well together. They were all very invested. But once the 116th Congress came to a close, a number of them retired um, or um, chose to move off the committee or were taken off the committee. So going into uh, 2021, we had um, seven new members of the committee. So there's, you know, 12, 12 altogether, seven new new members. And so um, so the chair and vice chair were dealing with um, with you know, a majority of members who had never served on the committee didn't know how it had operated in the 116th. And their only experience prior was on the very partisan committees that they had, uh, that they, that they serve on. So this whole, you know, new modernization committee with its bipartisan way of doing things was entirely new to them. Um, But before the committee had, had even met, um, January 6th happened. And, you know, there was a, a, a period of a few weeks after that, where everyone was you know, trying to process and figure out how to move forward. And Chair Kilmer was really struggling with how to do this. And so he and the the vice chair decided that the only way forward was to get all of the committee members together, as uncomfortable as it might be, and to um, to do sort of a bipartisan planning retreat um, where they could um, introduce the the new members to the structure of the committee and the way that that the committee worked. Um, and then also to just have time and space in private uh, for the members to discuss um, everything from from January 6th and how they felt about what happened that day to um, why they decided to run for Congress. What have they um, what have they most appreciated about being a member of Congress? What has been their biggest frustrations? And the whole idea was just to get them talking and to to know each other on a on a, a more personal level, um, they had done that at the beginning of the 116th Congress, and it worked um, it worked really well. But given the you know the uh, January 6th being being part of this, they decided that bringing in uh, like a mediator, a conflict resolution expert would be a good way forward. So it wouldn't be up to the chair or the vice chair to try to, to moderate uh, the, the, the conversations that could get really tough. And so a, uh, a conflict resolution expert attended the, the retreat as well. And so when the conversation turned to, um, to January 6th, he stepped in and sort of managed uh, the questions and um, responses. And, and that, was, that was really helpful. I think it was something that they, um, they felt uncomfortable doing and you know, a little bit fearful doing because they weren't sure how the conversation would go. Um, but I think in the end, they all hurt each other. And I should also mention that one of the goals of, of both of the retreats was to figure out what the members were interested in working on. And, you know, I think this is another important aspect of how the committee worked was getting buy-in from the the various members to, you know, give them something to run with. And so by giving them 
that opportunity to take the lead and to you know design the recommendations um that was something that that really created a you know a a sense of um of belonging and accomplishment and once those recommendations passed it gave those members something to you know really feel like they they played a they played a part in they took the lead on that and so um that that sort of that that kind of setup i think was also very key to the the committee success you mentioned that the committee brought in mediator at the retreat uh, but that was not the only outside help that the committee got the committee also worked with uh behavior scientists uh tell us more about what motivated that what did they how did they help the committee's work for me personally that was the most fascinating aspect of um you know the of the work that that we did um this was on the heels of january 6th um chair kilmer you know to his credit after you know having this this uh this planning retreat with the members and still struggling with how to you know to to move the committee forward he decided that he wanted to talk to anyone and everyone he could who had deep experience with dysfunction and uh what he was really interested in was talking to people who didn't know anything about congress because he felt like we just we need to get out of this place like this this place is dysfunctional everyone here you know can um you know uh can can tell us how dysfunctional it is but in order to get out of this you know this um this crazy cycle we need to talk to people who um who have dealt with this in other settings and just hear what they have to say and i i think that the you know the 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 path to all of these uh talks started off with adam grant who's a organizational psychologist at uh university of pennsylvania and um i think chair kilmer had if i remembering correctly had reached out to to him because he was a big fan of his podcast and probably knows him through some other other uh, other means but um Adam Grant recommended a bunch of people and so as staff we just started reaching out to all of these these people who we were uh, who were recommended to us and explaining to them what it was that we were trying to do and they all found it fascinating they're like really congress wants to, wants to hear hear from us and they kind of jumped at the opportunity too, just because it was so outside their realm of you know what they normally uh, normally work in. But really, uh, we're sort of excited about this idea of trying to apply their skills to you know a dysfunctional environment like Congress. And so we had um, gosh, just dozens of calls because you know this was during COVID, so a lot of time on Zoom talking to uh, to to people and hearing about you know the work they did and how it might apply. Uh, to what we were trying to do. We talked to behavioral uh, psychologists, organizational psychologists, business consultants. We talked to people who were involved in the um, you know, Northern Ireland peace agreements where, you know, they walked us through the steps that they took to bring, you know, the two factions together and, you know, made very clear that you don't have to like each other in order to make, you know, progress and, you know, come to agreement on ways that you can live together and work together. And, um, we talked to uh, to coaches, you know, who were um, tasked with turning a losing team into a winning one, and learned a lot about just you know codes of conduct in sports, where you know you uh, if you're a you know a team and you're playing to win, you know you you go out on the field and you fight like hell to win the game, 
but within that intense um, competition, there is a code of conduct that every player agrees to, you know, before, before the competition begins. And so, you know, we, it, it was just a really sort of uh, mind opening way to start thinking about how we can apply some of these principles to, uh, um, to, uh, to Congress. So what were some of the, the ideas? What were some of the, the better ways that these organizational and uh, organizational psychologists and behavioral scientists brought to the committee? Some of them had to do um, mainly with how how you approach conflict. What we did after having all of these conversations was that we set up a series of three hearings. And the first hearing was uh, designed to get everyone at the table to talk about um, how we got here. And so um, the, the behavioral psychologists who we brought in um, sort of talked about different ways of structuring how things are done in Congress to try to take attention away from the people who aren't interested in working or producing and sure. you know getting things done um, and putting the focus on the people who are. One of the things that we did was change the way that we do hearings. And so um, when you watch any congressional hearing, um, typically, the members are up on the dais. You know, they're uh, a couple feet above the witnesses. The witnesses are at a table with bright lights on them, staring up at the members. And all the Republicans are on one side of the um, of the um, dais, and all the Democrats are on the other. Um, there's typically a couple of you know layers or rows of um, where the members sit, so they're kind of looking at the back of each other's heads. And so, uh, what we did was say. Um, let's get rid of that setup. Let's sit around a table together. So everyone is on the same level, members and witnesses looking at each other, you know, in the eye when they speak. And instead of doing the Democrats on one side, Republicans on the other, we're going to sit D-R-D-R-D-R. And uh, as Chair Kilmer would always say, that would mean that during a hearing, when you hear something interesting and you lean over to say something about it to the person next to you, you're not talking to another Democrat, you know, someone from your own party, you're talking to someone from the other party. And it's just a way of kind of opening up lines of, of communication. Um, in addition to that, we um, we sort of switched the rules up and dispensed with what they call the five minute rule, where every member gets five minutes to question the witnesses and get their, you know, their talking points in and that kind of thing. Um, instead of doing that, the the chair and the vice chair would make their opening statements and then just move into a period of what we just what we called open discussion. And what that meant was that every member could jump into the conversation. So, you know, the chair would typically kick things off by asking the witnesses um, a question. The witnesses would respond. Another member would just signal, can I say something? And they could jump in and another member, you know, that might make them think of something and they could jump in. And But it just it created an atmosphere where people were much um, more likely to engage in substantive discussion and, you know, pick up on what each other were saying rather than, you know, uh, kind of lobbing their their partisan bombs and then walking out of the room when their five minutes is, is up. And so th there were just, you know, small things like that that made big differences in terms of, of um how the committee operated and it just created a much more collaborative um, atmosphere. 
and encourage discussion rather than discourage it. It's it's really fascinating. This was one of the pieces that really got me um, excited um, and inspired when I originally read um, this op-ed piece that we've sort of uh, been referencing throughout, because one of the phrases that uh, that Amanda Ripley writes is it, she says the following: Sometimes crises make conflicts worse; other times they force radical creativity, and that just like really hit me hard. But what I also think is so kind of inspirational about what you've shared with us today is that there was certainly radical creativity for Congress, but also a lot of these things were not, uh, these were not massive changes. It was these, these little, these, these wonderful little uh, adjustments to the way in which the group sat, um, the, 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 the way that they set up the room, the way that they communicated with each other. Um, the way that you hired staff and and developed a budget, um, these radically creative ideas were also just 100% doable. And, you know, given our mission with, um, you know, focusing on the internal workings of Congress, um, we also did things like, let's talk to the people who actually work here. <laughs> yeah, so, so over the course of, uh, of, of the four years we were in existence, we held regular uh, brown bag meetings and um, and listening sessions for staff um, where, uh, you know, we were like, OK, this week we want to hear from chiefs of staff. Next week we'll hear from legislative directors to just let them vent, essentially, like tell us tell us what makes your job hard. And so many of the things that that staff shared with us were these very simple things. It would just be something like it drives me crazy how the switchboard cannot transfer all <laughs> to, you know, and you have to go through this crazy process. And, and so we would just dig into things like that, that, you know, they, they were these little things, but little things that drove people crazy, you know, and try to find fixes for those, those things. And now it is time to get to know you a little bit better. So everyone who comes onto the podcast, um, we ask a series of questions inspired by Proust, inspired by James Lipton and uh, Inside the Actor Studio, perhaps inspired by Vanity Fair. Uh, these are the better way questions. And so Huey and I are going to trade off uh, odds and evens. And I'm going to start with number one. You have a choice of two questions to answer, Marion. Uh, if you could wake up tomorrow having gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? Or you can answer... Is there a quality about yourself that you're currently working to improve? And if so, what is it? I'm going to go with the the second question. And that quality for me would be speaking out more regularly. One of my, you know, goals or, you know, things that I'm constantly working on is figuring out how to do a better job with that or to, you know, to be to believe I have something to say and just say it. <laughs> okay. So the next question is also a choice of one of two. You can answer either who is your favorite mentor or who do you wish you could be mentored by? You know, I'm thinking about this question. I, I went all the way back to um, to grad school and thought about um, a couple of, of professors who were on my dissertation committee. The reason why they were my favorite mentors was because they uh, showed such tremendous empathy in helping me. Get get through the program, and so as a as a quick example, 
um, that I think about often, which is, you know, which to me, you know, shows that it's important was that um, I was, you know, at, at one point struggling to get through this, this major research project. I had a deadline, I had to turn it in. And, um, and right at that same time, my, um, my cat who I'd had for about 15 years passed away. And um, I was just, you know, distraught. And I, you know, was trying so hard to get this paper done and I couldn't get through it. And I was like, I can't, you know, I can't go to this prestigious professor and, and, you know, and talk about this. But, uh, you know, I finally reached a point where I was like, I can't do it. I have to be honest and tell him what, you know, what's going on and ask for, you know, an extension. And, and when I talked to him, he, um, he just showed such tremendous empathy and was, Mm -hmm so caring and um and you know told me about his experience losing a pet and you know gave me the extension and it just made all the difference in the world and so i've always carried that with me about you know how important it is to um to show people um whether you know you're you're um managing them or just working with them empathy that's a great it's a great story all right, we're going to move into the sort of quick fire round. What is your best job, paid or unpaid, that you've ever had? The work with the Modernization Committee was by far um, the most fascinating, uh, just in terms of the range of issues that I got to work with the um, the members of Congress that I got to work closely with the you know all of the witnesses I worked with, all of the you know various uh, players involved in the process. There was just never a dull moment, so it was it was just a great learning experience. What is your favorite thing to do? My favorite thing to do is to um, run by myself very, very early in the morning uh, when it's quiet, uh, no one's awake yet, and you know it's just me running, you know, through the uh, through the park, and uh, it's just it's it's the you know the best way to kind of set my mind at ease and get me ready for the day. And I get to see all kinds of things in the morning that most people don't see. What's your favorite place? Um, for me, it's by the water, um, the ocean. I just, I, I love the, you know, the uh, meditative quality of the, the looking at the ocean and the sound of the ocean. What makes you proud? I think what makes me the most proud is just seeing the results of hard work or hard work paying off. I, I think probably the most recent was writing the committee's final report, just, you know, cranking out hundreds of pages of work and then seeing the finished product. I feel proud of that, but it can also be my dog and I just finished a basic manners class and she did great. I'm like proud of her <laughs> for her hard work. Yeah. <laughs> what email sign off do you use most frequently? Yeah. Well, I use best, but I struggle with this because, uh, um, I sometimes, um, get flack for that. It can seem informal, I guess. All right. What trend in your field is most overrated? Well, I was trying to think what my field actually is because it sort of spans, you know, academia to um, the Hill to now civil society work. And, um, and you know, the, I think the, the, the one trend line through all those is um, the need to constantly post on social media. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I appreciate social media, but I don't. I don't think it's necessary to post, you know, every every step you take. <laughs> I like that. All right. The last question, what word would you use to describe your day so far? I I would use four words and that's just all over the place. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. 
Uh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a wonderful discussion. Um, before we go, you know, all, all of our listeners are folks within organizations. They're looking for better ways. Some of them may be trying to tackle longstanding challenges in new and innovative ways. What final words do you have for our listeners that you can draw from your experience with the committee? I would say, and and this actually comes from uh, with people who I worked with um, over in the EU during the uh, the pandemic um, when we were all just trying to figure out how do we how do we keep working? How do we you know uh, do committee hearings and you know vote on the floor when we're virtual and. And uh, one of the the people who I met over there who was struggling with the same um, with the questions that I was said that he was given the freedom to experiment. And I just thought that that was um, that was a really amazing advice during a pandemic when, you know, none of us knew what we were doing. And uh, because of that freedom, they wound up. Um, with some really innovative um, ways of, of of continuing their work that you know Congress Congress did not get there because we uh, you know did not have that uh, that same freedom but to just you know to to take that kind of approach to try new things and if it doesn't work it's not the end of the world you move on and you learn it doesn't work but if it does work great things can happen I love that the freedom to experiment yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much. I enjoyed this as well. Well, thank you, Marion, so much for joining us. And thank you all for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash RG Insights Lab. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we've talked about today, the work the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.